You are listening to the sermons of Hicksville Cornerstone Church in Hicksville, Ohio. To find out more about our church, visit www.hickscc.org. That's H-I-X-C-C.org. Hope you enjoy today's sermon. The initial disciples of Christ are charged as Jesus ascends to heaven with a clear call. Make disciples. Based on a first century world and Jesus demonstrating what a disciple looks like over his course of time to them, the disciples had a clear idea of what Jesus meant when he said, go and make disciples, because they had been discipled by Jesus. So in a sense, he's very much saying, go and do likewise. The question naturally arises, though, in a culture that, let's be real, we don't use the word disciple very often. We have to ask, what is a disciple? What is a disciple? Think about it. If you don't know the answer to that question, how are you supposed to make a disciple? It's like the second round of the Great British Bake Off, right? It's one of my guilty pleasures, okay? Don't laugh at me. Where they tell you to make some French pastry, right? Le tarte traponzine, right? And they've never heard of it. They just sit there going, I don't know what this looks like. I don't know what this tastes like. I don't know what this smells like. But at least they have the instructions before them. They at least have a shot to pull off what they are asking to create. And many of us, because we don't use the word disciple, we've been given the word la tarte tropenzine. And we don't got a clue how we move from point A to point B. We want the instructions though, right? We haven't done a good job of this, I think, as the American church. So much so that defining a disciple in Christendom has taken on many different definitions. Like I think from looking at the text of scripture and the history of the church, there are three broad ingredients, three broad categories that if we focus on these three things, it will help us make disciples of the nations. Here's what I think a disciple is. A disciple is a follower, a worshiper, and a witness. I'm going to say it again, so maybe it sinks into your very soul. A follower, a worshiper, and a witness for Jesus, right? But I didn't include the for Jesus in the actual definition. Why didn't I put of Jesus there? Because we're all disciples. Our vision statement is everyone a disciple, right? That's like the mark we're shooting for on the target. That's what we want to hit. We want everyone to be a disciple. But it states a very clear thing about mankind. All mankind are being discipled. All mankind are followers, worshipers, and witness to something. You see, all of us at our core, at our very core, are followers, worshipers, and witnesses. I think this is what it means to be fundamentally human. So let's take a look at this. If you're like, AJ, 
I don't believe you. Let me try to give you a good argument for why I believe we are all followers, worshipers, and witnesses to something. Let's take a look at followers. Now, I know there's like 150 bazillion books on leadership when you walk into the Barnes and Nobles, right? They got the leadership section. You can go, this is how I'd be a good leader. They don't have a followers section, which I find quite interesting because most people are followers, right? So we don't know how to be a good followers. We actually kind of treat it as a derogatory term for some reason. But all of us are followers. It's human nature to follow the trends, to follow the moral um, statutes, to follow even how people dress in the culture around us, right? If all of us were to go to Hicksville High School, not on Spirit Week, okay? That's a huge different monster. But if you were to go to Hicksville schools this week, you would see no children in Maasai outfits, right? None of them are wearing lion hunter outfits as they go to class in the mornings. Why? There are no lions in Hicksville. They're not. Likewise, if you go to the Maasai villages in Kenya, none of them are wearing jean jackets and have purple hair. Because we are at our very core followers. We follow the trends around us. Even fashion experts, the ones who desire to make money, not the ones that put a trash bag on a very beautiful person and walk them down a runway and say, Le tarte trepanzine, right? Not those, but the, like, the ones that want to make money in the fashion industry, they always move like one degree away from where the culture is like currently okay with, right? And, or they go back to something that already has existed before. I'm hearing bell bottoms are making a comeback. God help us all. <laughs> I will never be up here on a Sunday morning with a bell bottom, just so you know. I do not, does not bring out my leg shape. But we follow. We are followers. When I was a kid growing up in the state of Florida, you want to guess how I looked like? Every other kid in the state of Florida in the 90s, right? I had a shark tooth necklace. I had a flowery shirt that I wore every day. And I had spiked hair. Because that's how we dress in Florida. They still dress that way. We, the, Florida is very unique when it comes to its fashion sense, or lack thereof. And then when I moved to the Carolinas in middle school, and I walked into my classroom in the Carolinas with that same outfit on, I could hear the kid in overalls in the front row go, you ain't from around here, boy. <laughs> because we're followers by definition. Arguments can be made that human beings are most comfortable following. Because that means someone else has already been affirmed in whatever decision that has been made. Which means we might find the affirmation that we're looking for too. That's why it's so easy to follow the crowd. Because we want to be affirmed just like everyone else. And that leads to the second thing. We are all at our core worshipers. Look, I know the idea of worship seems to be a very religious concept. And on some level, I would argue that it very much is. There seems to be some sort of spiritual, transcendent nature to worship. Or at least that's how really good worship makes us feel. 
I think worship can best be defined as the practice of expressing praise, thanksgiving, or adoration. Worship can be defined as the practice of expressing praise, thanksgiving, or adoration, which all of us have experienced at some point, right? Go to any boy band concert, and you will see worship taking place. Right? It's absolute. There's tears. They touch their hand. <laughs> right? Some of you have been there. I'm a Backstreet Boys fan. There's nothing to, like, I'm not saying. And if you think it's just women, go to any sporting event. Go to any sporting event, especially if it's a championship game. You will see men cry who did not shed a tear on their wedding day. They didn't shed a tear. But if the people who are wearing the same colors as they do on a field lift a trophy, <laughs> the flood comes because they are worshipers at their core. Now, we can worship other things, too. We, many of us worship relationships. We've all seen unhealthy relationships where the emotional well-being of one person is dictated by how much attention they're receiving. We've all seen those. We can worship our jobs. We can express praise and adoration and thanksgiving for the joy of the work of our hands. Some of us worship at a car show, a hobby, a child, some of the narcissists in the room. It might be for your own pleasure. But we all worship, all of us. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Birds don't have boy bands that they go see the show. Apes don't go see sporting events and worship other apes. Why do we do this? You see, mankind is designed for worship. Mankind's designed for it. We were created to worship Yahweh God, to worship God. That is why for those of us who are Christians, it's such a natural thing to do. We worship God. We serve God. We bring an offering to God because he is worthy of worship. When we are worshiping, we are doing the very thing we were designed to do. First Chronicles 16.29 tells us this. This is like one of the ones. I had like 150 options, okay? First Chronicles, subscribe to the Lord, the glory do his name, bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Here's the thing, right? We just got through judges. We saw this firsthand in their lives. If we choose not to worship God, we will naturally find other things to put on the thrones of our heart. This is what we do. This is human intuition. We are drawn to the worship of other gods, other, other things, and serve them. This is why Deuteronomy 30 is so clear. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, it gives clear warning. We are worshipers. Here's the question. What are you worshiping? What are you worshiping? Will you worship a relationship, a job, a sports team, a pop band, or Jesus? What will you worship? 
The next thing that I'm convinced we are are witnesses. To be a witness is a natural outflow of the first two. If you follow something or someone so much so that you worship that thing, you will naturally tell others about it. Look, people do this when they wear their favorite sports team's logo, right? Even if they stink. Sorry, Bears fans in the room. I've seen, to I've seen tons of Bears fans all this week. Hats, jackets, one jersey, only one. They weren't that bold with their worship, right? But we show off, hey, this is my team. This is my group. If you've ever gone and seen a great movie, what do you do? You go home, you go to sleep, you don't think about it ever again. No, at the water cooler the next morning, you're like, do you know what I did this weekend? I saw the best movie ever. It's called Star Wars, right? <laughs> Blew my mind. There was the Force, Space Wizards. If you're musical, it's a great song. You hear that great song for the first time and you're like, oh, oh, that's so good. We share it. If you're visual, it's a movie. If you meet an amazing person, you tell other people about them. Have you met this new person? They're awesome. We should, I should introduce you to them. We bear witness. To be a witness to something is a natural handoff. It's the natural outcome of being a follower or a worshiper. So let's recap, okay? A disciple is described as someone who's a follower, a worshiper, and a witness. Everyone's a disciple. The question becomes, what are you a disciple of? So what does it mean? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? A disciple of Jesus. A disciple of Jesus should look radically, radically different than the rest of the world. Why? Because disciples of Jesus are following Jesus. They'll be worshiping Jesus. They'll be witness to Jesus. But there are two distinctions within being a disciple of Jesus. These are, don't miss these. These are some big theological terms, but they're, they're two distinctions. There is the receiving the title of being a disciple and then there is the process of discipleship. Another way of speaking of the receiving the title is just speaking of salvation. When you're saved, you now have the, you have the title of a follower of Jesus put upon you, even though you might have never acted like a Christian up until this point. A foundational feature of being a disciple of Jesus is simply being what's told us in the text of Scripture, born again. So Jesus meets a Pharisee named Nicodemus in the dead of night in an upper room. Nicodemus has seen the work of Jesus and wants to understand what it means. So this is what he says to him. Whoop. This man came to Jesus, this is Nicodemus, by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answers him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus goes on to share with Nicodemus the difference between being born in the flesh, which we all are, that's how we got here. Ask your mom if you have questions about how that works. Born in the flesh, and then born in the spirit. If 
It, it is those who believe in Jesus who have eternal life. We see this in the most famous verse in the exact same section of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But the word believe carries a much heavier meaning within the text than what we ascribe to the same word in English. Look, demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They believe it. They've been around for a while. They saw everything that took place in the life of Jesus. They know that Jesus is the Son of God, and yet they are destined for the fires of hell. Do you just have to believe it mentally, ascend to this truth intellectually? No. Discipleship is transformational at its core. When we're born again, we become followers, worshipers, and witnesses for Jesus. To use the New Testament language, we become a new creation. Our very hearts are changed. We desire different things. But, 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 but pastor, I know I'm a Christian because my mama went to church every Sunday. She put the bulletin up right on the, 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 the refrigerator at the end of every, every service. I tithe to the penny, pastor. That's how I know I'm a Christian. I haven't missed a Sunday school class in 10 years, pastor. That's how I know I'm a Christian. Great. All those things are great. Sunday school, great. Tithing, great. Your mama putting up the bulletin on the refrigerator, great. But they are not proofs that you're born again. You can do all the things to check the box, but if your heart is not transformed and in the process of continuing to be transformed, then you might not be born again. Do you desire, notice the heart language that exists, do you desire the light do you desire the things of Christ? Or do you still walk in darkness when you are in the halls that are not the church? It's the difference. It comes down to the difference between the light and the darkness. Jesus continues with Nicodemus. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is that other distinction in salvation, in being a disciple that takes place. It's the progressive aspect of our salvation. We, if you are a disciple of Jesus, will naturally grow in grace. We grow in the knowledge of Jesus. We are all in the process of being transformed. We might have been born again and received the title of salvation, but we will grow in the light now that we are in the light. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed 
into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Notice how it's one degree. I wish it was like 10 degrees at a time, right? Lord, make a large movement in my life. And sometimes he does move to the 10th degree, but most of the time it's a one degree. We don't see sanctification in like, oh, you should have seen me five days ago. It's more like, oh, you should have seen me five years ago. That's how it works. Which should lead us to the question, what is discipleship? If we've talked about what a disciple is, what is discipleship? How do we grow in grace? Now that we're born again, how do we grow up? And mature in our walk with the Lord. How do we literally become little Christ Christians in the world around us? Acting as his disciples wherever we go. This is called discipleship. Dallas Willard, who is, oh, he was, he was such a gift to the 20th century. He has a great definition of discipleship that I'd like us to chew on a little bit this morning. This is what he said. Discipleship is when we progressively replace ideas of darkness with ideas from the kingdom of God, or the ideas of the kingdom of light, in our hearts, the very depths of who we are. It's turning ideas of darkness into ideas of light. Here is the very scary thing about most ideas, though. Most ideas are assumed. We haven't thought about many ideas. We just assume them because... That's how things happen around us, and that's how things are done around us, and so we just assume those ideas are right. What makes it worse is that we now have an education system in, for a good portion of the country that doesn't necessarily teach us how to think, but spends a great deal of our time teaching us what to think. And in some parts of the world, it's even gotten worse than that, it's not teaching you what to think, it's teaching you what to feel. And your feelings very much shape your ideas and your thoughts, and that becomes super dangerous, right? You and I have a hundred different combinations of different emotions that we experience daily. If we were driven by those emotions, we'd be in trouble. Especially if our emotions are dictated by thoughts that are false about reality. Here's an example. I have one child, not naming names, but I have one child that loves to go out and jump in the rain, jump in puddles. I am not anti-puddle jumping, okay? I enjoy that too when Corey's not home, right? I love puddle jumping. But when it's thunderstorming outside, like you see the lightning bolts all around, and he goes, can I go jump in the puddles? And I tell him no. And he can go, Dad, that doesn't make me feel good. Right? And, but we get that because he's three. He is very much dictated by his emotions and not proper thinking of how lightning can kill you. And it's funny because he's three. It's scary when they're 23. In a romantic relationship where everyone can see that this is parasitical, right? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Two ticks, no dog. The person feels loved, even though they're being used to the gain of the other person. And you can tell them all the time, you're playing with fire, fire you're jumping in 
puddles and thunderstorms, but they won't hear it because they're not dictated by ideas of light. They're not even dictated by ideas of darkness. It just feels good. Why? Because their emotions are driving their decisions. They are worshiping what makes them feel good, which is the primary idol in our hearts in today's world, at least in America. The rest of the world don't have time to worry about that. They are following their own emotions, and in the process, they bear witness to their immaturity. Young people, young people, your heart is not always right, okay? I don't care what Disney tells you, okay? Your heart is not always right. Jeremiah 17, 9 actually says something very different. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's why we need a new one. We need a new heart. That's what Jesus is talking about with Nicodemus on the roof in John 3. We need to be born again. We have to learn how to walk in the light, which is really hard in a world full of darkness. So how are we discipled? Is it just passively sitting at church for an hour a week, listening to a crazy Florida boy speak for 30 minutes, and maybe singing a song? Is that how we're discipled? Maybe, yeah, a little. What about if you go to Sunday school? Right? You're one of those super Christians. You're here for two hours a week. Two whole hours. That's a huge portion of your week. That equals to about, you know, the same amount of time you spend on social media a day. How are we discipled? There are five elements of discipleship that are true across the board of being a disciple. No matter what you're discipled in, these are how you're discipled. This works for all discipleship, okay? Five elements of formation. Time, habit, intimacy, community, and instruction. Time, habit, intimacy, community, and instruction. Every coach in the room right now is going, yep, 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 because when you disciple someone how to throw a ball or kick a ball or tackle somebody, you do these five things over and over again for them to get it. These are the basic ingredients for formation. So for each one, I'm going to give you a world example, and then I'm going to give you an example of how Jesus did it so you can see an example of how he did it. First one's time, right? First one's time, world example. What you spend the most time on will affect the way you live your life. How you spend your time disciples you. You can't be a disciple of cooking if you spend no time in the kitchen, right? You can't. You can be a disciple of, of uh, Swanson Family TV dinners, right? That's a whole other sermon. And that supports my family, right? We like Swanson Family TV dinners. But you can't be a disciple of cooking. You can't put mashed potatoes, gravy, corn, and all those things in a Swanson mega meal and say that this is, this is how I cook. You have to spend time in it. And you're going to make mistakes. I make tons of mistakes in the kitchen. Just ask my family. But I'm trying to get better. So I spend some time doing it. How does Jesus do it? Jesus spent time with his disciples. He poured into those 12 guys for years. He lived with them. He ate with them. 
They went to weddings together. They were together a lot. They prayed together. They had rich conversations. They were together all the, big word, time. Next one, habit. Next one's a habit. A good world example of this is just working out, right? If you don't have a habit of working out, what happens every time you do the following day? Oh, you wake up in the morning, you feel muscles that you didn't know existed, right? If you haven't worked out in a while, it hurts. And then you keep leaning into the habit. And over time, that pain of sorrow turns into pain of joy. You begin to crave that burn, right, that they call it. They want the burn because they're developing a habit which is good for their bodies. It's actually easier and gets better over time. The more you work out, the more you both enjoy the results and just the joy of it. Jesus models this in prayer, right? For many of us, prayer is hard. To spiritual activity in a world of darkness. Prayer is really hard. But the more you do it, the easier it becomes. The easier it becomes. Intimacy. This is how great friendships work. My fear is in today's world, this is becoming more and more rare. But by risking intimacy we grow. We reveal our hearts to one another. We, we risk failure and rejection when you are intimate and share things with one another. Intimacy and risk are inherently related. You can't have one without the other. And the way people around you respond to intimacy will greatly shape the person that they are. That is why if we are blessed we're intimate with the right people. We can share our lives with the right people. And even the crazy stuff about us, they don't turn away. And there's much joy that can be taken from that. We can grow. And the wrong people, many of us have been on that part, the wrong people will abuse our intimacy for their own advantage. How did Jesus do this? Jesus, Jesus shared his heart. He shared in suffering. He shared in grief with his friends. Read the Lazarus account this afternoon. Notice how many intimate moments exist within that account, both in the life of Jesus with his disciples, Jesus with Mary and Martha, and Jesus with the crowds. Jesus is just, his heart is laid bare throughout the whole experience. The disciples could use that model as a way to learn how to be intimate with others. I don't have it on me, thank the Lord, right? But the data for young people in phones, right, one of the ways that young people, if, you, if you're my age or younger and you grew up with text messaging, the reason it's so much harder for many young people to communicate in one-on-one -on -one settings is because this, the thumb work, removes risk, right? Because you can edit before you say anything, right? How many of us still have memories from high school where we said something and we went, oh, no, no, I can't. I want it back, and you try to shove it back in your mouth before they hear it, right? There was inherently risk that was given within relationships when we had to correspond using our mouths, right? And now there's no risks. And so we've, we've limited the amount of risk. There's a great book on that um, called The Coddling of the American Mind 
that deals specifically with this on how our young people are so risk averse, and they are, statistics bear that out. And that's healthy in some regards. They actually are removing themselves from some risks that can kill them, but it also is removing them from risks that will help them flourish. If we wanna be a church that impacts the next generation, we must learn to risk intimacy with them. There's no other way around it. Next is community. I think this is a clear one, right? Statistically, these are statistics. Statistically, over time, your five closest friends will share your income bracket. Why will your five closest friends share your income bracket? This is the statistics, right? There's actual evidence that they help shape the decisions you make with your money. If you have a friend that stinks with money management, you too can pay for their trip to Vegas, right? Now the statistics, those are statistics. There are of course outliers. I don't need emails full of, I'm different, right? Yeah, you might be the one person that's different. But statistics bear out, this is how it typically plays in the world. But community greatly impacts transformation. Jesus did life in community. He did life with his disciples. They were committed to one another. Jesus could have been, think about it, Jesus could have been a nomadic preacher. He had every right to be. But he chose to be in community as he lived his life for the intention of us being in community as well. Last is instruction. This is the primary form of discipleship in the church. Everyone has a podcast, a book, or a platform that they give out instruction on. Here's the problem. Well, two of them. First, you will retain less than 10% of what you hear passively. So if you're here this morning and you're listening to the sermon this morning and you're not taking notes, you'll remember less than 10% of it. It's just, if you're just passively involved, that's how it works, okay? Second, this is a huge one. We are not primarily thinkers. Human beings are not primarily thinkers. We are primarily desirers. That's why the Bible spends so much time speaking to our hearts and not our heads. We're hearts first before we're minds. That's why we have to be born again and given a new heart. And then over time, our minds function better as it becomes more in line as a heart that seeks after Jesus. We begin to function more in the kingdom of light than we do in the kingdom of darkness. Jesus does this by, he clearly does this in his sermons, right? He instructs us in his sermons. He gives us the church community so we could grow in the other areas of spiritual formation. But if you look at the parables of Jesus, they're primarily focused on what? The heart. And I fear in the church in America, we've primarily, primarily focused on the head. Know these five things and you'll be fine. Do these 10 things in your marriage relationship and it'll be good. We want head knowledge. We don't want heart transformation. So what does discipleship in the church look like? The church in America, especially in my lifetime, is primarily focused, primarily focused on instruction while neglecting the other primary avenues of formation. This is what the church in America sells us, right? Passively show up on Sunday, sing a song, go home, check off the church box, and then go again next Sunday unless you can find an excuse to get out of it, right? Like that's, that's what we're sold as church in America. That's why the church looks a lot more like the world than vice versa. We have replaced go and make disciples with go and make church attenders. 
We've replaced go and make disciples. We go and make church attenders. Who intake some information in their head, but never actually make the changes in their heart. It's In the Sundays ahead, we're going to talk about how we're going to do that better as a church. Really focus on some spiritual formation ideas, specifically those that are grounded in the very word of God. Now, this isn't a Discipleship 101 series, right? Or uh, let's make all disciples in these 12 easy steps. Hear me when I say this. This is key. Discipleship is hard. I'm convinced this is why in a country that values ease and comfort more than anything else, we've begun to abandon what it means to actually disciple others. Because it's hard. We don't like hard things in America. But discipleship is good. It's that great British bake-off good, like at the ends where they get to, it's good. Mm, it's sweet. I'll end with a story. I got saved in middle school. Born again, it was like a crazy life-changing moment for me. Where I surrendered my anger, my bitterness, my life to Jesus, and I stopped running from him and started running to him. Right? For me, it was a drastic change because <laughs> I needed saving. <laughs> Oh, I need to save him. And now I was his disciple, at least in title, right? I've been given that idea. But I needed a lot of transformation. How to live as a Christian was very, very new to me. And here's a newsflash. It's still a journey I'm on. I am not a perfect Christian by any means. Many Sundays I come up here and I'm preaching to myself before I'm preaching to you. Because I need this. But I had a youth pastor, Jake, who was so patient. He was so patient, y'all. He spent time giving me the instruction I needed. And I was soaking it up. I'm like sitting there with him. I'm actively taking notes. Do this, right? Setting goals. What can I do this week to improve my Christian walk? Growing. And I had someone to walk on the journey with me. Every time I screwed up, which was uh, regularly, I could go to Jake and be like, Jake, um, how do I do this differently? If I had questions on how do I pray, Jake could be there to help me learn how to pray. He gave me the skills of how to read a Bible. He gave me the skills of how to share my faith with others. He discipled me. Not overnight. It took years. And then when I moved on to high school, right, we, had, we, had, we were a big church. So there was a middle school pastor and a high school pastor. I wasn't Jake's anymore. I went to the high school now, right? And so Keith became my youth pastor, and he discipled me, helped me navigate romantic relationships, conflict with my peers, plans for adulthood and college, my pride. Y'all, I was so proud. And there were nights where I was in tears confessing my sin, my yet again sin. Anyone else have yet again sin? before God trying to overcome the kingdom of darkness in my life. And it was hard, yet it was so good. Following Jesus is the hardest thing I have ever done in my life. But it is the best thing I have ever done in my life. So here's the question to end before we take the Lord's Supper together. Would you consider yourself a, would you consider yourself a disciple of Christ? Would you consider yourself a Christian? 
what does it mean to be a Christian? What is, it, what is the gospel? You and me are all born into sin. We're sinners. If you don't believe that, you're welcome to serve in the nursery. Bunch of two-year-olds, they'll, treat, they'll tell you real quick, right? Real quick. We're born into sin. We screw up. We, we are failures when it comes to moral culpability and so many things, especially in compared to the word of God. And God had every right in that moment to discard us, to be done, to bring a flood, you could say, right? But instead, like he did for Noah and the ark, he put a covering, a shield, for a people set apart for his glory. And he offers that to all mankind. He says, would you like to enter the ark? Would you like to enter salvation? He gives you the opportunity to repent of your sin. This is one of Jesus' only sermons. Repent and believe. Turn from your sin and follow Jesus as one of his disciples. Have you done that today? And if you have, praise God. Now I will ask, how will you be discipled in the years ahead? How will you continue to take ideas in your life that are from the kingdom of darkness and transform them into ideas of redemption that are good not only for you, but for the world that we have come to redeem as the church, as the body of Christ, as him, as our cornerstone. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus, please see me after the service. Let's get that settled. May today be the day of new birth for you. For those of